Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hello, and welcome to the Silmarillion Seminar with Corey Olson. This is Jordan Brown, High King of the Noldor and proud Silmarillion heir. In this week's episode, we discuss Of the Fifth Battle, Near Nith Arnoidiad, or Dragon 1.0. Our topics range from Dave questioning why the elves fight in the face of hopelessness, some fantastic style time moments, myself stumbling over elvish pronunciation at my second favorite part in the Silmarillion, and we answer the nerd's age-old favorite question, who would win in a fight, this time between Smaug and Glaurung. They say the battle has unnumbered tiers, but I counted and came up with 10,923. An odd number for Turgon shed a single tear. Okay, good evening everybody and welcome to the Silmarillion Seminar. This is our second week and our first planned week of live broadcast of the Silmarillion Seminar. Um, we are in in the, I know the, uh, we're a little bit behind on our uh, posted recordings of the Silmarillion Seminar, um, but in the live seminar we are up at the Near Nithar Noidiad, which is what we're going to be talking about today. We just finished Baron and Luthien last time. Um, so we're going to jump in with more talk about Baron and Luthien, because that seems like the way to start. And of course, not only to us, but apparently um, to Tolkien and to Christopher Tolkien, that seemed like the way to start, because of course our first paragraph of this chapter um, comes right back to Baron and Luthien and tells the end of their story. And I think, you know, we spent some time... Uh, at the end of last time, uh, actually all through the last three weeks, talking about uh, the 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 whole uh, title of the, of the Baron and La- uh, of uh, of the Baron and, and Luthien story, the the Lay of Lathian, released from bondage, and uh, and I think it's it's also kind of interesting to note here. It's it's certainly an interesting choice of where the story breaks. Um, you'll re- you'll remember last time. Um, you know, the very end of it was on Luthien's choice. You know, the choice that was presented to Luthien and, you know, this doom she chose, forsaking the Blessed Realm and putting aside all claim to kinship with those that dwell there. Um, and, and the end of the chapter is on both the good that comes through her choice... Um, yet in her choice, the two kindreds have been joined, and she is the forerunner of many in whom the Eldar see yet, though all the world is changed, the, likeni- the likeness of Luthien the Beloved, whom they have lost. So, from the Elven standpoint, again, as we mentioned last time, that's sort of a very Elven framework note there at the very end of the chapter, we talk about their loss of Luthien and their permanent separation from Luthien, even though that same sentence does recognize the way in which both kindreds, uh, and indeed the whole, you know, all of Middle-earth, was, you know, has been blessed and enriched by her choice of destiny. But that's where we end. That's the end of that chapter. That's 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 sort of the place where the story ends. Then in the next chapter, in chapter 20, which is tonight's chapter, we we sort of pick it up again. I mean, in fact, if you didn't know the breaks were there and you were just reading straight through, um, though all the world has changed, the likeness of Luthien the Beloved, whom they have lost. It is said that Baron and Luthien returned to the northern lands of Middle-earth. You would never really know that there was a chapter break there at all, I think. Um, but, uh, so, you know, therefore, I think we have lots of justification for spending just a little bit looking at the final things that we're told about Baron and Luthien. Here we're given the, well, I almost said the afterlife of Baron and Luthien, which is not quite right, but I think also not entirely wrong either. Um, what do you guys think? 
about this about this transition and about the things that are that are sort of em- emphasized about Baron and Luthien here, Joe. All right. Well, um, I think uh, as you said, the transition is very uh, necessary and welcomed. Both of, both of them. Um, just it kind of also leads you into the setup of some great things that are taking place. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk about was uh, how estranged they seem to be from everybody else, and uh, I think it kind of makes sense when you look at it, because, I mean, for one thing, Baron, he was dead. <laughs> he came back. I mean, that's just something way out there. I mean, and, uh, and Luthien is the first elf, really, uh, uh, that, that became immortal. I mean, they're just, like, they're almost out of this world, yet they're tied into it deeply. It's just extremely strange as to what they are, and, uh, how that plays into, uh, you know, uh, this is the question, but how it plays into Thingle and his reaction to things is just really key in the in the Near Ninth and Odiad. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think that you're right to, to sort of look at th- their their sort of status, they're in a different place. I mean, they've been in a different place all the way along. I mean, that that is, their fate is different and, the, their, you know, the choices that they have made. But um, the their status after the whole <laughs> resurrection thing. As you say, Baron was dead. Both of them are unique. Baron is our only recorded resurrected human being uh, thus far in human history, and Luthien is the only mortal elf. So yeah, I mean, she's she's put herself in a different ca- uh, category by her choice. He has been put into a different category um, by the cho- by the 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 grace that was given to him, and. I mean, I think that this is sort of expressed really clearly in the name of the in, in the name that is given to the place that they live. They separate themselves off, and then the place that they live is called the land of the dead that live, Dorfiren Iguinar. And uh, I think that that's the land of the dead that live. Um, identifying both things that is you know it's i mean it, it, that could sound by itself that could sound like the place that is haunted by ghosts um but that's clearly not the sense of it the emphasis is on their life um you know it's not like the land of the undead but uh um but it certainly is you know they are also being both of them classified as the dead which is a label which fits both of them um, in different ways. Baron was dead. She has chosen death. Um, so both both death and life are therefore clearly uh, related again. And yeah, Lara has has brought up, I, I, and I think also, I think that's a really neat um, just kind of snippet that's thrown out there um, that, that no living man ever saw Baron again. Um, and that's uh you know again, they they are completely they are completely separated um but uh yeah brandon go ahead no i just thought uh also that was interesting was um that in terms of memorials it seems that uh in tolkien memorials are very important and um there are no no one marked where last their bodies lay um so there's no memorial well, to Baron and Luthien, which I thought was kind of interesting in itself. Yeah, no, that is. I mean, and and you're right. You, we might kind of expect that. I mean, especially since their deaths, their eventual deaths, especially Luthien's eventual death, you'd think would be a really big deal. Would be something commemoratable. Uh, you know, I mean, we think of the two, the two other 
um, the two other famous graves that we've seen so far, the two other uh, very significant tombs, the tombs of Finrod and Fingolfin. And um, for both of them, there's this sense, and especially I would say with Finrod, that although you know their gravesite and where their bodies rest does is is obviously important and no orcs dare to come there and it you know finrod's uh tomb sort of cleanses the island but um but at the same time this like he's still he's just he's hanging out now over in the west i mean we're told in that same paragraph when where where finrod's tomb is described um that he's walking with his father finarfin so um you know we know that to some extent that memorial is not the memorial of his real you know death capital D, death. Yeah, his spirit separated from his body, but he's fine. You know, he, he's over in Valinor now. Luthien, this is a real passing. This is, a, a, you know, as, as was emphasized at the end of the previous chapter, but as Brandon points out, it's not memorialized. Um, and I think the effect of this is to really make it more, um, more sort of Ethereal, I guess, is what I want to say. None saw Baron or Luthien leave the world. Notice we don't say die there. <laughs> they leave the world. Dying, they've already done that, right? Uh, and now it's just uh, departure. Um, but, uh, uh, John, I wanted to give you a chance here. I know you uh, had a couple things that you wanted to say about this, too. Okay. Uh, yes. Um, the first um, thing I would like to address is the sorrow of Melia and also the separation, as we've stated earlier, of uh, Baron and Luthien from the outside world. Um, actually, how about I go to Baron and Luthien first, since that is what we're on at the present time. Yeah. It reminded me of how, when you were in uh, the Furian Fantasy course that you were discussing, how Solan Fall is separated from the world of men, and how he's basically cut off, sundered. And what we see is a very similar thing with Baron almost and Luthien, and the fact they are fenced away in basically the Darnan Guirhav, basically the, the land of the dead that live. And while it's different, of course, because the the roles are reversed, basically, um, Baron and Luthien are going Baron and Luthien are going to die. They're not going to uh, remain immortal. What we do see, however, is this own subsection. And I wonder I, I really I, I'm really wondering how much of this was sketched out when in the scene um, in the Lord of the Rings on Weathertop when basically Aragorn is explaining to Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin uh, basically the story of Baron Luthien, because it, it's not really made all that clear um, that they were really sundered, though it does seem to be on that mythic level. I think that's the right word to use. It's mythic. It seems at this point to be more legendary. And the, it basically the fact that it is remote and that it is distance, distant is uh, basically a matter for, you know, great topic of conversation and debate. The other final little note I wanted to mention was concerning Melian. Yeah, yeah. Because all throughout the text, we have basically seen her separation from Thingol in terms of counsel, her basically unrest with the whole Sumeril issue. And now we basically see her final grief. And I didn't know whether perhaps beginning this chapter with Baron and Luthien was a segue into another grief that basically we begin with grief, and that this chapter ends in great grief. So that it almost has a bookend effect. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, and it is, um, yeah, <laughs> as usual, John, lots of really good stuff there. And uh, I, I, I'll, I'll try to make sure I don't 
forget and lose my way here, but um, sort of working backwards, uh, you're you're right, and certainly the 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 end of the Baron and Luthien story um, and the loss there that is coming back to the loss there at the beginning, the loss of them and 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 their passing away and their bodies not being known, um, is I think you know an important segue into. Um, is definitely an important segue into the Near Nith Arnoidiad because on the one hand, the triumph of the story of Baron and Luthien um, is explicitly one of the things that leads to the Near Nith. That is, it's, you know, Mithros hears the story of Baron and Luthien and says, hey, you know, Morgoth is definitely vulnerable. Let's try, let's make one more attempt to take him out. Um, However, it's like he doesn't remember the whole story. Remember, not just that it ends in tragedy, but that it ends in loss, that it ends in separation, and uh, and and yeah, the 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 loss and the downfall, um, and the separations and 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 the the deaths that happen there. I mean, I I certainly agree that there is a kind of a of a bookend thing there, and I'm glad you mentioned the thing about Melian because I wasn't really thinking about that, but you're right, and uh, I think we've been talking about Melian and Thingol, and as as you said, the gap between them. This is such such uh, an evocative illustration of that gap. Luthien went to Menegroth and healed the winter of Thingol with a touch of her hand. So, here's Thingol happy and cheered up again, right? And at the at the moment that Thingol is emerging from his you know from his depression, from his you know there's sort of this kind of shades of shades of Theoden and and Gandalf releasing Theoden from uh, from from his from his gloom and depression that that that, that Wormtongue had gotten him in. Um, anyway, so the winter of Thingol is, is is healed, and at the moment that Thingol is is all perking up, Melian looked into her eyes and read the doom that was written there and turned away, for she knew that a parting beyond the end of the world had come between them. Um, Melian is being seized by grief at the moment that Thingol is being recovered by joy, and you can see they're just not tracking together, or really, to be fair, Thingol is just not tracking with Melian. She is so far ahead of him right now, and uh, and he is just not not in line at all here. Um, but I think the emphasis on her grief, and no grief of loss has been heavier than the grief of Melian and the Maya in that hour. Um, that, and that's really remarkable stuff to remember, because she too, Melian too, even though she's she's a Maya, even though she's she's you know one of the gods, one of these angelic beings, she too is tied to Arda. So where the souls of mortals go is separated for now, even from the Valar, um, and that's an important thing to recall. And we're we're definitely reminded of that here. And I think it's uh, um, you know we might perhaps be tempted to think that. Um, that it doesn't sort of matter as much. That is, you know, I mean, hey, she's like one of the gods. Like, uh, you know, what? why would she grieve so much? Well, actually, turns out it does seem to be a big deal. Um, but also now, backtracking one more step, John, uh, I think you're right, and I think the Sir Orfeo parallel is kind of neat. Um, there is a sense, th- there, there is very much an element of, of fairy that, that sort of mythic element uh, of, of this sort of the enchant uh, the enchanting nature of this region now you know sort of the strange and eerie quality um, the sort of the 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 
the mythic status that the place that them and the even the place that they live attains from the people around them. It's kind of funny. I mean, it's like super fairy, right? Because I mean, these are all fairies. I mean, elves are fairies. They're synonyms. So I mean, this is the story of the fairies. But like the fairies who live near here consider this place like it's like fairy to them, right? So it's uh, um, you know, that's uh, that's a I think that's a that's a pretty neat. Uh, a pretty neat observation because it definitely does have that effect. I think, um, Brandon, go ahead. You wanted to respond to some of this. Yeah, no, I was just wondering, like, what exactly? I mean, I thought that was a really striking passage, too. Um, uh, the part about uh, Millian's grief, um, and that no grief had been heavier than Millian the Maya in that hour. I was just wondering, what what exactly is it that she grieves about? Um, because ultimately, yes, from the Elvis perspective, it's a bad thing to be lost Luthien, but it's ultimately a good thing in the end. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of confused on that. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't sound like she's viewing this as a release from bondage, right? I mean, even even in the moment where we have what seems to be the final or almost the final release from bondage that we see in their story, that is Thingol being released uh, from the winter into which he had fallen. Um, but yeah, Melian, she's not she's not happy about this. She's not she's not rejoicing at what has happened. But it seems to me just separation um, that even she doesn't know where the souls of mortals go and that she knows that that this this parting has come which is a serious parting you know she she knew that a parting beyond the end of the world had come between them um you know so that's it, it, it is clear you know this certainly is a good reminder to us as well of the way in which um even these spirits even the maya even the Maiar and the Valar um, are invested, you know, and do. Valinor. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that they really are invested in in our, you know, sort of our frame of reference and our our uh, um, with our emotions and our feelings and our and our sort of thoughts, or at least ones that are that are very similar. They operate very much. Uh, in many ways on our level. That kind of decreased over time. If you go back and read the early stuff, like the Book of Lost Tales stuff, um, the Valar are even more <laughs> like, uh, like, like regular people. Um, but, uh, but you can still see it, even in the published Silmarillion. Um, Joe, go ahead. Uh, one thing I was going to say that was kind of interesting was, uh, I mean... It was interesting how their love to be together and just them wanting to be together is what really separated them uh, from everybody else, just how they were able to do that. And then um, a question that I had was, uh, it says, they went forth alone, fearing neither thirst nor hunger, and they passed beyond the river. Uh, just, what exactly does that mean? I'm reading that and I'm like, okay, I mean, they're still mortal, but are they just like, so, okay, well... One of us has already died now, so it's not that big of a deal if we die. We'll find food if we don't, we don't. No big deal. But then again, you know, Baron was really tight with the environment with the animals before, so I just kind of wonder what's really going on there. Yeah, no, I agree. That is a really tantalizing line. Like, does this mean that they don't need to eat anymore? I mean, it, you could almost take it like fearing neither thirst nor hun- hunger. Like, hey, you know, we're, we, you know, we, we are, are, we just transcend, you know, food and drink. Um, I don't think that's true. I mean, they're, they're, the whole point was that they chose mortality, right? Or that she chose mortality. So 
presumably they are mortals. Um, but yeah, at the very least, it does sort of suggest that they have a really, a really different attitude. You know, this Baron and Luthien went forth alone, fearing neither thirst nor hunger. Um, does give this sense of the you know there's this sense of peacefulness right they are um they are done you know they have passed through their trials you know they've earned their retirement and their attitude is 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 very different there's no more anxiety i mean you think about think about for instance the place the place where we started our last uh class um that is right after they met Kelgorm and Kurofin for the last time mercifully and uh, before they set out for Angband when they're there in the wilderness and she heals him of the arrow wound and and then he leaves and he sings his song and she catches up with him that that whole time right when they're they're together in the wilderness it's the second time that they're together in the wilderness for a brief and happy time um but they know that it can't last it's troubled by his vow and he knows you know and she's like uh, there are these two basically two very undesirable destinies before you either you forswear your oath or you um or you you know attack morgoth one way or the other i'm coming with you um now they're past all of those things now we have this is the third time that they're going to enjoy a time of peace and happiness in the wilderness together um but this one is going to be of a totally different kind and the quality of their of their relationship together of their time together of their relationship with the outside world is now totally different um and I think that that's it's it's another thing that uh, makes me think. Even thinking, actually thinking back, uh, you know, since now now John has made me uh, think of the fairy and fantasy texts again, even more than Sir Orfeo. I think of the end of Sir Launfal, um, when he uh, when he he you know jumps up on the horse with her and rides off uh, to fairy at the end. Um, you know, forsaking the human court, forsaking human society, and uh, and just you know riding off to live in fairy with her before his trial is even is even really sort of officially ended. Um, so th- there's 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 that sort of feeling uh, of this too. I think to me, um, we should uh, we should not linger too long, having already uh, spent three weeks on Baron and Luthien, but Chris, uh, I'll uh, get to you, and then we'll move on to the Union of Mithros, but go ahead. I'll keep it brief. Um, as we were talking about uh, uh, Baron and Luthien not having a grave marker, or or, knowing, or a, uh, a tomb or anything, I was thinking about uh, Luthien in particular, and it, for some reason, brought to mind the tale of Arwen and Aragorn. Um, Arwen has kind of a similar she goes off after after uh, Aragorn dies. She, go, she goes off to Lorien by herself, and uh, um, she just lays herself down to rest on Cairn Amroth. And there is a green grave. It's not. It doesn't indicate that it's marked, or that it. It, it just sounds like she just laid down there and and uh, and died. So it's kind of like they, in that case they know where it's at, but it still doesn't look like there's any memorial to it. So it's. A little bit of maybe symmetry there between Luthien and Arwen, yeah. as in a lot of other ways. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Though I think that the thing that's to me interesting there is the way, is the choice that Tolkien made to emphasize a moment, even if even if only sort of a comparatively brief moment that is brief compared to the lifespan of elves, um, of separation between Arwen and Aragorn. Baron and Luthien go off. You know, well, not as yeah. I say, into the sunset. They go into the sunrise. They head east, right? But anyway, they go off into the sunrise together, and um, 
presumably from all that we learn they die at about the same time you know and we don't really know what happens whereas of course Tolkien that's the assumption yeah 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 exactly whereas Tolkien with Aragorn and Arwen um, by contrast gives us this this big uh, you know scene of his deathbed and her still being alive um and so he has a much rougher time of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's, you know, and and we get those speeches about her sort of, you know, tasting the bitterness of the cup that she's chosen, and all. I mean, it's 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 really powerful. We don't we don't get that. We we never see that with Luthien. Um, but at the same time, one also has to remember, Arwen hasn't been through the same thing. Like she can go to Mandos, you know, she and 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 and, and make this choice in Valinor and return. Um, it's and not to try to downgrade Arwen's choice and say it wasn't a big deal, because clearly, on the one hand, it's every bit a big deal as Luthien's choice. Um, but it comes under different circumstances, and uh, um, you know, she hasn't. Um, she hasn't quite had the same kinds of opportunities um, to make to make these to make the the choices that Luthien has been making all the way along of 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 following him, um, and I think it's one of the things that I think is really it would it would uh, it would bear some more discussion later on though I think probably it should wait till we're actually looking at Lord of the Rings passages on you know another time but um but i think that it's it's interesting to see although the parallels between these two pairs that is baron and luthien and arwen and aragorn are so close the way that tolkien sets up the the events of their relationships you know um Arwen, the, the, just very simply, the fact that Arwen stays at home the whole time uh, i know there's lots of uh lots of people talk about how horrible it would have been had Peter Jackson and company stayed with their original plan to have Arwen come and join Aragorn at Helm's Deep and, you know, have all of these action scenes with Arwen kicking butt. And I... Well, she I, fought the ring race, right? Yeah, but, you know, exactly. And and she and she was there at Helm's Deep. I mean, I, get I mean, my understanding is they were actually filming that when they, when they changed I it. I heard that. Um, but... And so I said, you know, people were people were outraged about that. And certainly, it's very different from Arwen as we see her in the book. But when you think back to the Baron and Luthien context, in some ways, that is actually what you'd expect. Um, I, you know, like where's where's Arwen on the back of a on the back of a hound? You know, coming in to 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 kick the butt of of Aragorn's enemies. Um, you know, when he when they've got him surrounded or or captured. I mean, that's actually the kind of thing that we might expect and we don't get that from Arwen and I think it's it's I think it's interesting um that Tolkien has these two pairs um and their kind of careers play themselves out so differently um and that's one of the reasons I think that 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 those speeches by Arwen and what we see from her at the end of her life um are so important because there's some of the places where we see her really really acting um and choosing uh, much more, much more sort of uh, 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 proactively than we see her doing in many other places. But anyway, I just, I, having said we should move on quickly, I spent a lot of time. So, <laughs> so what's what's my part? Go ahead. My part was brief. Yeah, that's true. It is totally not your fault. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's go on to the union of Mithros, which I think um, will lead us into a, a round of one of our favorite pastimes in this seminar. Uh, which is Thingol bashing. Um, so let's 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 start with Thingol. Um, he has more than one reason for refusing to work with Mithros here, um, and I think you know there are clearly some sympathetic things and some less sympathetic things. Um, 
what are you guys what are you guys thinking about this are are uh, are are we as a group as down on thingo as usual here or uh, do, do we have anyone who's uh, going to come to thingo's defense or what do you think joe Alright, well, uh, I'm going to come to his defense, but not not really. Because, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to start off, he put himself in this position, and uh, he kind of messed himself over in that regard, so no matter what he does, it's, it's going to end badly, in my opinion. But uh, the one thing that stands as a good and bad reason itself for, like, the situation and his indecision is going to make is the Silmaril. I mean, it's like, uh, I mean, he's like stuck, oh, do I let go, do I keep it? I mean, it's like one of the three greatest things ever crafted, ever. Yeah. Like, why not keep it? <laughs> but then you also have, like, Sons of Fanor breathing down your neck, threatening to kill you, and like, you know, I mean, it, it, either way, he's going down, and he already set himself up for it, so I mean, yeah, he, he's in a bad situation, but I, do I feel bad for him? Not really. Not at all. <laughs> that was a, that was a, a valiant attempt to defend <laughs> thing all there, Joe. Dave? Yeah, I. So I'm a. One of my uh, um, uh, flaws that I sometimes deal with is pride, and uh, and and I certainly like I I emotionally sympathize with Thingol when he refuses to give up the Silmarillion, and it's really, it's hard to fault anyone for you know it, it's hard to fault him. I mean, it's easy to say. Geez, should have given it up. Look what happens later. Should have listened to Melian. But uh, there's no way he could possibly have known that that would be the outcome. Especially because, ultimately, it's not the sons of Feanor that, um, uh, the, you know, like, like his downfall is sort of accomplished by his keeping in the Silmarillion, but not by the sons of Feanor. So it's really difficult, you know. Like it's it's too the the path from where he is now to the future is so complicated. It's hard to really fault him for that. Um, but on the other hand, it's not hard to fault him for his his you know to the extent that his desire to keep the Silmarillion was based not on principle, like you guys don't deserve this, but more on desire to keep it for himself. That's obviously not um, uh, that's obviously not you know a, a good thing. In terms of his unwillingness to support the um, uh, the mustering of forces to attack Morgoth, I mean, ultimately, we've discussed this before. They, no matter what they did, they were never going to win. So it's kind of pointless for him. He's not the one that's sworn an oath to go and take the Silmarils from uh, from Morgoth, and and there's really nothing that can be accomplished by actually attacking Morgoth. Um, uh, so, I mean, you know, like, why hold it against him that he doesn't send his forces in? Yes. Uh, yes, though, um, uh, though I am, uh, I am tempted to uh, quote Gandalf to Denethor here and say, such counsels will make the enemy's victory certain indeed. Um, but, but no, but I do understand. Um, as you say, you know, they didn't have any chance before. They don't have more chance now. I mean, it's very clear the direction, you know, it's very clear the direction the arrow is pointing at this point in Beleriand. I mean, Morgoth is getting stronger. That is not him personally, as we see, he personally is diminishing, but his armies are getting greater. Um, and, you know, many of his uh, research and development projects are, are, are really starting to come to maturity, like Glaurung. And, um, and the elves are not getting stronger. You know, the elves are getting weaker. You know, we've, we've, we'd already lost Fingolfin. Sorry, Jordan. Um, we've already lost Finrod. Um, 
we are, you know, we 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 we, we, we lose Fingen in this round. Um, again, the elves are not getting greater; they're not multiplying. The orcs are multiplying and multiplying. The elves are not multiplying. Um, so, if they didn't have a chance before, they certainly don't have a chance now. So, I, I I agree on the one hand that that sort of shrewd reasoning, but at the same time, I'm not sure that this that that kind of reasoning. I'm not I'm not convinced that it's entirely appropriate. I mean, one trend that you notice is that like sticking together is almost always a good idea. Um, even if the odds are against you, sometimes especially if the odds are against you. That is, I'm just sort of looking at trends in in Tolkien's works. The people who the people who stick together and stick to each other, like for instance, Baron and Luthien, um, do well. Um, and those that divide and are divided, less so. Um, but so that's so that's that's not unreasonable because. Using the Baron and Luthien example, you could argue that, okay, they never would have actually won the war. They could have never won the war, but they still might have accomplished some good by going to fight. And, and you know, truthfully, what good is accomplished by waiting? You're still going to end up losing it. No matter what they do, fight now or wait and fight later, they still lose. Um, I suppose maybe their hope is if we just hold out long enough, the uh, Valor will come from the West and save us. But I guess I kind of agree with you that Ultimately, the point of banding together, of joining the union of the elves, is less that, well, if we all band together, maybe we could have won, but more about it's the right thing to do. Even though we'll lose, even though we really have no chance, we should be sticking together. We should have some faith that some good will come out of teaming up, working together, collaborating, that sort of thing. Uh, And and ultimately, I don't think his reasons, and, and the reality is that Maybe he had good reasons for not going to war, but I'm sure those weren't his main reasons. I, I suspect his main reasons would be more focused on, you know, spite for the sons of Feanor and an unwillingness to, to uh, cooperate with the Noldor. Same thing with Orodrath. It, you know, I mean, he has very, very good reasons not to go to war, but ultimately the thing that's really driving it is his, um, is his, is his resentfulness, yeah. which is justified. Right. Totally justified. Right. Nevertheless... You know, at the end of the day, the the greater evil is Morgoth, not not the sons of Feanor. Um, so, you know, like, they really should have they should have the, the the ultimate good here would have been to swallow your pride and and go to war, even if you think you're marching to your death. I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I looking at the Oradreth passage uh, at the bottom of one eighty eight. Um, uh, of course, he would not march forth at the word of any son of Feanor um, because of the de- deeds of Kelgorm and Kurfin, as you say. Of course, who could blame him? And the elves of Nargothron trusted still to defend their hidden stronghold by secrecy and stealth. Um, and again, that's... Uh, okay, that's practical. But again, practicality is not the whole thing. So, Okay, so your response to this is, well, you know, screw you all. Um, we're safe. So we're just going to stay here, um, which, of course, as we'll see, is not true. Like, guess what? They're going to fall. They're all going to fall. Um, and in fact, I'm reminded of the of exactly the terms of the discussion that the captains of the armies of Gondor and Rohan have during the chapter called The Last Debate um, after the Battle of Pelennor Fields. When uh, when when uh, you know they're, they're they're saying like so, 
um, you know, are are you saying? You know, they ask Gandalf. You know, are you saying that we should retreat to our strongholds and you know lock ourselves in? You know, in hopes that our time might last a little bit longer. Um, and I, I think it's Amir who says that, if I'm recalling correctly. And Gandalf says, "No." He says that would be prudent. But I don't counsel prudence. Um, and so instead, he says, no, instead what we should do is we should all get together and we should make a, a, a crazy, desperate, impossible assault. Now, of course, they have a shrewd reason for this, too. It's not just like, hey, let's, let's all throw our lives away and hope this turns out well. Um, but it's interesting that essentially what the elves of Beleriand are doing in the, will, you know, do do in the end, that is those, they're those th- especially those three kingdoms, which have, you know, secrecy and kind of defensive strength, mainly, uh, namely G- uh, Gondolin and Doriath and Nargothrond, this is exactly what they do. Let's, let's retreat into ourselves and let's um, do our own thing, and we'll let the others... You know, the others are going to perish, and that's kind of a shame, but at least we're safe in our little thing. That's the Nargothrond attitude right now. It's not yet Turgon's attitude. Um, Turgon does leave. He opens the Uyghur of Gondolin and comes out to help, and that seems clearly a good thing. There's this you catastrophe in the middle of the battle when Turgon shows up unexpectedly. Um, but, as we'll see, it's going to be his policy from here on out, <laughs> after the near Nyth already yet, and that's not going to work out well either. Um, but, uh, anyway, yeah, so I think that there's, 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 there are a bunch of things that we can see here, but the one thing that I would point out, just going back for a second to Thingol, um, you know, it, we can't avoid the, or we shouldn't avoid or overlook the, and every day that he looked upon the Silmaril, the more he desired to keep it forever, for such was its power. Um, and I think that, you know, it's uh, two really interesting things there. I mean, we can see that he is not just, he is not just, um, you know, thinking fond and understandable and, and sort of sentimental thoughts about Baron and Luthien here. Uh, he's also thinking greedy thoughts and selfish thoughts. Um, he just flat doesn't want to give up the Silmaril anymore, even though he didn't even... You know, he, he at the beginning didn't even seem to care about it itself. It's not like he's like I've always wanted a Silmaril and now I can finally have one. Um, he was just trying to get Baron killed uh, originally, but now it's taking it's kind of taking over him. That is, the desire for it is taking over him, and I think it's really interesting the way that his um, that line for such was its power. Um, and I don't want to spend too much time on that. Let's come back to that um, when we get to. Uh, when we get to the downfall of Thingol several weeks down the road, um, after Tour and Turinbath, chapter 22 is the ruin of Doriath, and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to it there. But remember this passage, remember this little half-sentence, for such was its power, uh, when we come back to it there later on. Um, I am thinking we had better accelerate a little bit. Um, let's, let's go on to Fingon's attack. Um, and okay, and uh, we're going to read, uh, because this really has to be done aloud, so let's, so let's read. Um, uh, let's see, I, uh, we had a couple volunteers for reading. Um, hmm. Let's see. Uh, Jordan, you want to do the... Uh, can you do the quotations, Jordan? Can you do the Elvish part? I can certainly try. All right. Well, then, uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we... Um, um, Chris, 
why don't you read the narration and then Jordan you can read the shouts okay um, and I want to start from the paragraph um, our, our little uh, pre-battle you catastrophe here when Torgan shows up so so Chris you should start with but now a cry went up um, and let's uh, let's let's read that paragraph there very good but now a cry went up passing up the wind from the south from the south from vale to vale and elves and men lifted their voices in wonder and joy for on sending the men looked for, Turgon had opened the league of Gondolin, and was come with an army ten thousand strong, with bright mail and long swords and spears like a forest. Then when Fingon heard afar the great trumpet of Turgon his brother, the shadow passed, and his heart was uplifted, and he shouted aloud. Utile un are, aie eldelai, ar atanarate. Utile un are, the day has come. Behold, people of the Eldar and fathers of men, the day has come. And all those who heard his, his great voice echoing his answered, crying, Aute ai lome, the night is passing. <laughs> okay. My apologies for Juan Jr. snuck up behind me. I, uh, <laughs> the rabbits must have come out outside or something. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no problem. We haven't had a contribution from little Juan Jr. Uh, up there in a while, so that was cool. Um, <laughs> he used to be a bit of a future. Uh, a bit of a feature, I mean, uh, a little while back. Um, this is... Uh, the, the sort of shout and response here um, between Fingon and and his people um, I, I find really moving um, and I always whenever I get to this I always feel like I have to uh, put a, 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 a shout out as I just actually earlier today promised that I would uh, to my former student Capella who who now lives in Australia um, um, who took my Tolkien class at Washington College and uh, loved this story so much that she actually had Utulian Aura and Auta Ilome um, in Tengwar tattooed on her feet after this. So, so, so we, we, uh, uh, she, she, she now has those two elvish phrases in tattoos. It's, uh, that's, that's, pretty, uh, that's, that's pretty dedicated. So... Uh, uh, <laughs> Props to Capella for some of the. I think, really, it's hard to get geekier tattoos than that. That's uh, that's pretty hardcore. Um, but anyway, the, these are really important phrases to remember. Of course, we'll come back to them before the end of the chapter. But we should all also be remembering them as we move on in the next chapter or two as well. The day has come, and we think about this. You know, even just thinking back in terms of the conversation we were just having about the hopelessness of their war against Morgoth, this statement ultimately of hope that Fingon is shouting here, the day has come. Behold, people of the Eldar and fathers of men, the day has come. You know, that the night is passing. And I think the the thing that is most powerful, that's most evocative there, um, is is the tenses. Right? I mean he's speaking, that is Fingon is speaking in the present perfect tense. The day has come. Present perfect, meaning it is an action that is complete in the present moment. Um, 
This is the moment when the day has arrived. It has been arriving, we have been enduring the night, and the day now is here. And their response, the night is passing, present progressive, right? It is a thing that is currently going on. Um, the passing away of the night is happening right now. Um, so I think that that's... Um, I think that that's uh, you know, again this 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 really powerful and moving um, statement of hope made the more um, <laughs> made the more poignant by the fact that it is at the beginning of a battle which we know will be called unnumbered tears. Um, but uh, anyway, so yeah, that that's a that's a a really powerful passage, only less powerful uh, than the passage where it's echoed later on. Um, but uh i think that the hmm, hmm let's see uh mike do you want to talk about uh do you want to talk about gelmir and fingen here um sure um <clears throat> what i noted <clears throat> in the Excuse me. In the passage with Gelmir, is uh, that that to me read as if it was the most gruesome passage that we've got to so far, and uh, I mean the detail is pretty terrible, and then uh, there's more gruesomeness in different parts of this chapter. There's a lot of extremely uh, graphic and kind of bloody violence in this chapter, more so than in other chapters, and. I would pick out the Gelmir kind of uh, passages as the worst of the bunch. So um, this is the terrible battle of unnumbered tears, and Tolkien is laying on the uh, gruesome detail pretty thick here. Yeah. Um, Just an observation. Yeah. And and I I think that that is... um, I think that that's a really good observation, that we get these moments... um, which we haven't seen to quite the same extent. Um, I mean, even the heroic death of Fingolfin in combat with Morgoth, we don't get the we don't get the gruesome detail. I mean, we're told facts about that, right? I mean, he's crushed under Morgoth's foot, and then Morgoth lifts his body and breaks it, and he's going to cast it. I mean, it's it's sort of horrifying enough, um, but yet we we don't get, as you say, this sort of graphic. Phys- I mean, of hands being lopped off and 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 heads. The pile of heads um, is uh, you know <laughs> that, that we get near the end of the chapter. We just we haven't seen much like that before, and it's like you know he's sort of bringing us in close to see these few de- uh, you know as if by um, by not shielding us you know in 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 sort of high language from the the the, the horror and the gruesomeness, um, and I I agree with you also as well, uh, Mike about the death of the death of Fingen as well. Um, you know that that when they're when they're sort of beating his beating his body into the into the into into the uh, uh, yeah they beat him into the dust with their maces and his banner blue and silver they trod into the mire of his blood. Um, he he has these visual images that he keeps giving, um, and he 
you know, that it's as if he is sort of evoking, evoking all of the the suffering and the the horror of the entire battle in these these few uh, uh, gruesome visual images. Um, a brief uh, a brief style time thing that I would actually um, that I since we're on since we're on a basic uh, style time uh, segment here. Um, uh, We've seen this kind of trend before, but I think that it's um, it's important to notice when this kind of thing happens because um, um, we can see him sort of shift registers at different moments in the Silmarillion. Um, that is, we we can see him shift from the mode where he's just doing this sort of big, wide, panoramic view narrative, like we get at the bottom of 188 and forward. Um, you know, in those days, Mardro, son of Feanor, lifted up his heart. We're not getting any, like, description of an event here. We're just kind of being told, at this point in history, this is the stuff that's happening. Um, but Mardro's had the help of the Naugrim. But Mardro's made trial of his strength too soon. Um... From Doriath came little help. So, I mean, this is just the narrator speaking from a hundred miles ab- above the ground, kind of looking at the whole political situation. Then we get this transition point at the beginning of a paragraph, and I'm thinking of the top of page, not the very top, the second paragraph of page 190. On the appointed day, on the morning of midsummer, the trumpets of the Eldar greeted the rising of the sun, and in the east was raised the standard of of the sons of Feanor, and in the west the standard of Fingon, high king of the Noldor. Then Fingon looked out from the walls of Ithil Sirion. Now, now we're in close. You know, so the, the narration in this paragraph has suddenly zoomed in. We're getting physical description of an actual event. You know, we're, we're shown Fingon standing there on the walls of his fortress, looking out and seeing his host. Um, and we're, you know, we're, we're getting dialogue after this, not just sort of the epic dialogue of the battle shouts, but we get the we get we get a direct quotation from the um from the you know the the messenger the captain of the host of morgoth um and he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna zoom back out again later on um you know it's it's uh it's you know, especially after thus ended Nirnaith Arnoidiad, certainly when we get to great was the triumph of Morgoth and his design was accomplished in a manner after his own heart, we're back again to that way above the ground kind of summary. Um, and I think it's interesting because, you know, remember, as we've seen all the way along, this whole book is just a brief, brief synopsis. I mean, we're being told these amazing epic stories, which... Um, of which if you know if there if each of these whole stories were told each chapter you know probably contains several different epics that could be told um but we're getting these really really shortened versions of them and it's like we get these stylistic reminders that these stories exist right so here's still not the whole thing i mean the version of the near night arnodia that we get is very very brief and yet here's a little taste of the actual of what of what the actual narrative would be like we'll not get down all the way to ground level but we'll get pretty close and 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 i think that those reminders are one of the things um that make the the sort of the narrative style of the silmarillion so fascinating that we can sort of see those different levels operating and then be reminded of the way in which you know there are all these stories that are as if they exist and are fully written even though most of them are not fully written but um you know these stories that 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 exist out there that this is you know and we're reminded that we're just reading sort of the the digest version of this um uh, mike did you have further thoughts you wanted to add 
I'm sorry, two brief thoughts. One is I, I agree that uh, in terms of the camera focusing in on detail, and I was just thinking about how Tolkien describes a warrior dying in battle, like maybe at the highest, most abstracted end of the spectrum is when he'll say, a warrior fell, and use that, that term fell. Yeah. And that sort of generalizes and abstracts what's going on. Here we have... Tolkien operating at the uh, at the other end of the spectrum, where we're getting the graphic detail about what actually happened to these warriors and in, in detail how they were how they were killed. And uh, the Fingon one is especially evocative for me because you've got the granular description of what happened to him, plus the detail in terms of the color that his you know his flags and the color of his I, I can't remember right now, but there's the combination of the color plus the violence kind of jumps out at me in a way that other in a way that other passages have not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no I agree. Um blue and silver is his banner. By the way, that they trod into the mire of his blood. I guess I just I I I I just love that sentence. Um yeah, no I agree. Um uh Jason, you wanted to add something? Yeah, can you hear me okay? I can, yeah. Okay, great. Um uh, since we're Dwelling on the Gelmer passage uh, briefly, you know, the start of the next paragraph, we have the the statement by ill chance at that place in the outwork stood Gwyndor, and you know, my my antenna immediately perk up whenever <laughs> I see the word chance in Tolkien, and I'm right. wondering this is kind of tying back into what Dave was saying earlier uh, about you know they they can't win even though even if they all band together and everything, but are we to Look at this and say, "Well, you know, this is not randomness. This is the outworking of the curse that it, it had to happen this way. There's some kind of providence type thing happening here that Gwyndor happened to be standing there at that particular moment to see Gilmer getting killed." Yeah, yeah, and you know, and it's one of the things because, um, of course, you're you're perfectly right uh, to you know to to have the antenna perk up at that. I mean, that's 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 something that really does seem a really stable trend in Tolkien's writings. And yet, at the same time, I, you know, I always feel like we have to be careful that... Because, it, as in this case, as you're suggesting, we, it's not like we can see the the outcome or, or the purpose, right? Um, sometimes you can. Um, that is, sometimes you can go back and put together and see, all right, well, if this... I mean, one of the most obvious examples is one that I've pointed to several times before in the past, um, the things in The Hobbit, right? Oh, it was really bad that they got kidnapped by the goblins. Isn't that... So like, it would have been much better if they'd gone through the path. And then we learned out, oh, but um, if they had stayed on the... If they had just stayed on the path that they were originally on, that would have led them uh, into a dead end. And so it was fortunate for them that they had this misfortune. And then the same exact thing is said later on in the book about there being... Uh, lost in the woods, uh, tied up by the spiders, and then imprisoned by the elves. That had they stayed on that path, actually, they you know would have been lost in the swamps. But you know, since they were kidnapped by the elves so conveniently, um, though it seemed unfortunate at the time, they were you know they ended up going down the river to the lake, which was the only safe path that there is, it turns out. So, I mean, that, that's sort of, I think, one of the simplest and most obvious examples of these moments where we see a piece of ill chance, which turns out to be providentially useful uh, and a blessing. But, you know, this doesn't seem obvious. I mean, it's not that one couldn't look at it hard enough from enough angles to, to be able to kind of work something out of why, I guess, 
it's a good thing that the host of Fingen gets destroyed and um yeah <laughs> but but you know it's it's not that not that we can't possibly see any good coming from it later on but I don't think it's obvious and I don't think I, I don't think it's intuitive and I think it's one of the things sometimes I I, I think that some readers will tend to sort of want to oversimplify and say anytime they see a reference to chance to say so this is obviously you know Iluvatar choreographing something for like a you know clearly a, a directly and obviously good end it's it doesn't always seem to work like that that is sometimes the the purposes behind things there does seem to be a purpose but it is not it is not always scrutable I think um but uh, yeah, yeah, Jason, go ahead. Yeah, I, w- I wasn't thinking in terms of. Sorry, I, I wasn't thinking yeah. in terms of saying, "Oh yeah, there's some, there's some good in necessarily that's going to come out of that." But I was thinking more of the kind of the outworking of the curse. Yeah, that uh, this is part of the the sort of judgment on the Noldor. I mean, could we envision a scenario where the plan had just worked perfectly and and you know they had won, they had driven down and in, you know into the basement of Angband and gotten the Silmarils back? I mean, obviously we know that can't happen, and so there has to be something happening kind of on the surface that that prevents that although you know you, you scratch the surface you look underneath there may be something else going on which I'm, I'm thinking in this case might be the outworking of the curse when we read that phrase ill chance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah I mean and, and another thing to keep in mind that we'll talk about this in a lot more detail next week um, is that some of this stuff is also the power of Morgoth asserting itself as well. That is, you know, he he can apply curses as well, um, and he can also sort of work to make stuff happen. Um, but um, but yeah, no, there there does seem to be um, certainly based upon previous examples that we have, and the one that leaps immediately to mind. Um, is in the the duel between Finrod and Sauron, um, where again you say like oh you know he might have won like think the poem seemed to be going pretty well, uh, you know the verse was going his way for quite se- for for several lines and then because of the curse because of uh, because of the the curse of the Noldor, um, it's just he does you know as we talked about before he doesn't have any um, it, it, in the end his his you know the ground is cut from under his own feet by the curse of the Noldor itself and and the way in which he's always stuck by that and i th- so I think that we can kind of see that same pattern here um uh, yeah i mean that that certainly does seem does seem fair to me um thinking of the 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 treachery and things um any thoughts on any thoughts on Oldor? Uh, and the treachery of men here, we get this sort of different element, the sort of new element um, that is new, not just, I mean, when <laughs> we're, we're used to dealing with treachery, um, but that's usually a Noldor thing, right? Um, and, uh, you know, we think to the, I think back to Melian saying to Thingol that now, um, you know, we are ensnared in the fate of the Noldor as well, because, you know, you, you know, brought a Silmaril in here to Doriath, Brainiac, so that was great. Um, but again, it's been an older thing. It didn't even apply to Thingol prior to that. Now, um, there's more than just... This, this is not just the Noldor treachery. I mean, you can say that there is a kind of irony, right, to the sons of Feodor being on the butt end of a betrayal. Um, uh, 
yeah, I mean, you know, it's as uh, as the as the people of Olfang, uh, you know, come in and attack them from behind. Um, not that you can't see any element of like, yeah. So, uh, so how does how does uh, how does setting fire to those ships feel like, guys? After all, here. Um, so certainly, again, there, there is a kind of irony, a kind of a kind of uh, a sort of understandable. Um, fitness to the sons of Feanor being on the receiving end of some of some treachery but but they're not doing it but it isn't it isn't their fault so this doesn't seem to be an obvious working out of the of the oath itself um but i don't know any other any does anybody have any have any thoughts on on oldor the accursed which is a fantastic name Anybody? All right. Well, one one last thing I wanted to say um, then is I love the 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 business about about how half of the uh, the double agents that Morgoth sends in disappoint him um, and remain faithful. Uh, you know, Oldor the Accursed is kind of a cool character. Um, to me, even cooler is Bor, who uh, who 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 double crosses the double crosser and uh, uh, and ends up defecting to the good guy's side, um, and that that I think is a, is a, is is a really interesting and powerful moment, and I think it's 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 a really important thing, even to keep in mind when we're sometimes people object to. The treatment of people like the Southrons in the Lord of the Rings, you know, right here are these evil races of men who come up and and like you know as if you know Tolkien has characterized these, um, you know, these southern races of men as as just like you know sort of mindlessly evil beings. Well, Bohr should remind us that even those who have, you know, even these peoples who have basically contracted with with the enemy and and agreed to serve as traitors. Um, Clearly, still do have their own free will. Of course, it makes the people of Olfang look even worse. But it it, it is an important reminder that this kind of thing can happen, um, and that basically, you know, if the Southrons are there on the Battle of Pelennor Field, it's not just because they are like we must obey the master or we are intrinsically evil, um, but. But they've they've made a choice. They could they could defect. There's a precedent, Dave. Um, I think another interesting point about the um, treacherous men is that they uh, they ultimately don't get what they were promised from Morgoth, too, right? Yes. Yes. He he sort of double cross. He uses them and double cross. I don't you know I don't know if you can call it double crossing. I don't know if they actually had a contract written down. You'll get these particular lands if you serve me in this war. But ultimately, he disappoints them as well. Uh, you know, and who knows who knows whether the the motivating reason that they turn on the elves is that Morgoth promised them something. But but they they the uh, the text makes a point of saying um, that they didn't get what they were promised. And and uh, and you know Morgoth withholds from them the lands that he promised them, and instead gives them other lands. And and I think that's an interesting point because I, I I sit and wonder is that is that as a strategy for Morgoth does that pay off? Does that work? On the one hand, you would think that after a while, if you you know kept saying like, look, work for me, and I'll give you this, and then you don't give it to him, that eventually people would say, to heck with you, I'm not going to do that. 
on the other hand, it breeds more evil. It, it, it sort of it serves his his purposes because what he does he screws them over, doesn't give them the land he promised, gives them other land, which I imagine embitters them, and then they take that out on the local populace, which consists largely of men who are faithful to the elves, who, you know, the Adain who Morgoth hates, and so they go around and pillage and take land from people and abuse them and steal their women, and so. So not only does he tempt them into treachery, but then by double-crossing them, he uh, instills in them a, a desire, you know, he causes them, I, I don't want to say causes, but he breeds sort of negative feelings and resentments in them that leads them to create even further acts of evil. Right. Uh, and so, so indeed, it, it's, you know, I almost wonder if, if, if he isn't simply reneging on a deal, but he, in fact, intentionally um, does this to them in hopes that it will lead to them committing further acts of evil. <laughs> right. This is him, you know, spreading evil. Right, and 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 like making them more evil because obviously their own <clears throat> their own level of evil was insufficient. Right. I mean, like, look at the whole boar disaster. Right. You know that you can't trust these people. You know, you never send humans in to do orcs' work. Right. When the, you know that this is. Um, they were a disappointment, and, and 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 it's also almost like it just he doesn't trust them either. Um, like you know, whatever you guys stay over there in Hithlum. I'm not going to trust you with sacking Beleriand. I'm not going to send you guys after Nargothrond. I'm not going to send you guys after Thingol. I'm not even going to send you guys after the Green Elves over in Osiriand. I'm going to send you after the women and children of the House of Hador. Okay, can you guys mop up over there? And I'm going to keep you penned in, and I'm not going to let you out. Um, it's almost like, for different reasons, Morgoth is now thinking, uh, thinking little, undervaluing uh, men. He was using them as his tool, and they didn't work out really. I mean, it 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 worked. That is, you know, the treason did bring about uh, the end of the battle and stuff, but but it it didn't work out like he had wanted it to, and it was a near thing. Um, so yeah, they're not trustworthy. That's what, see, that's what I wonder. I wonder if I mean. So, and, and maybe we're digging at things where we won't really find anything or there's nothing to be found, but I wonder at this decision not to give them what he promised. Is this just Morgoth being Morgoth? Um, is it, as you're sort of suggesting, could it be sort of motivated by, by, is it sort of a punishment or revenge on these men? Like, you know, you guys didn't really work out the way I planned, so I'm not going to reward you. Or, 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 you know, the thing that I wonder about, which I'm not even sure about, is is this indeed a strategy? Is right. he sitting and thinking... The best way to corrupt, you know, I'm corrupting these men, and I'll start by tempting them, and then I will, the next step in their corruption will be to withhold what I promised them and breed hatred, resentment, frustration, evil with, you know, sort of, or feelings that that sort of will lead them to commit evil acts. So that's what I, I sort of, I was thinking about this on a run, and I never really came to a conclusion, but I just thought it was curious, like, is this a concerted effort by him? Is he intentionally doing this knowing that this will further the corruption of these men, or is it perhaps just Morgoth being Morgoth? He never he never keeps his deals, so why do it now? Right, right, yeah, and I, that that does seem to be part of it. Uh, uh, Morgoth being Morgoth. Um, sorry, as a as a Red Sox fan, I have strange associations with that phrase. But anyway, uh, yeah, no, it's. <laughs> <laughs> which is sorry it's sort of distracting me um anyhow uh uh yeah i, I think that that's certainly a part of it i mean yeah I, it's I mean, is anybody surprised when morgoth doesn't keep his word um 
but at the same time one other thing that I, one other way that I think that we can think about this that is of 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 the people of of Oldor ending up in Hithlam is the contrast which is so um which speaks so clearly, I think, to the difference in perspective. The people in Oldor are sent to Hithlam as a punishment. They wanted rich lands, but instead they're getting the shaft and they're just ending up in Hithlam. Well, remember who was in Hithlam before? Not only the people of Hador, of course, but Fingolfin and Fingon. That is, the High King of the Noldor chose that for his realm, not because it was the greatest and most, but because it was he didn't care. And remember, this was even emphasized back in everybody's favorite chapter of Beleriand and its realms when we were going through all the different realms and talking about who was ruling in which. Um, you may remember, as I as I'm sure you have all bound every sentence and paragraph of that chapter to your heart with hoops of steel, um, that. That Finrod, we're told, is is ruling the widest realm, and we're getting you know, all, of, and basically exactly the bits that the children of Oldor really wanted to to go to, right? The people of Oldor wish they could get fin, uh, Finrod's realm because it was huge and it was beautiful and it was green and it was excellent. Um, and w- so, while Finrod, the youngest of all the Elven lords, as Tolkien emphasizes, had this huge wide realm, the High King had only this small, rugged, barren, not very pleasant land up in the north because he wasn't interested in that. In other words, the greatest among the elves were, you know, humbly took the least, not only in size, but in quality of all of the realms and cheerfully chose to live there, whereas the people of Oldor um, are being sent to the home of the High King of the Elves, to the personal realm of the High King of the Elves, and for them it's getting the shaft. And I think that that's, that, 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 that I think speaks pretty clearly uh, to the differences in perspective, and we've spoken before, of course, about the differences between sort of the humility of the good guys um, and the pride of the bad guys. But we should also talk about uh, we should also talk about the dwarves. Um, I think that the details about the dwarves in this battle um, are one of my favorite parts of this ho- of the whole description of the battle proper. Um, it's been a long time since we've had the uh, uh, you know the unlovely Naugrim and their cumbrous and unlovely speech. Um, that was pretty much the last we heard of them. Um, they had a brief return, which we didn't even talk about too much, um, with Ael, the dark elf. That is, we knew that he hung out with them and learned from them. Um, but other than that, we have not had too many appearances or even references to the Naugrim. Um, and yet here they show up in the middle of the battle and play a, um, a, a significant and certainly a memorable, um, role. And I think, you know, for me, the, 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 the remarkable moment and, uh, Mike, if you're there, I'll call on you in a minute because I know you you had a bunch of uh, things that you wanted to say about um, about this moment, um, which I want to let you do. But just to just to kind of uh, read that and review it. Um, so Glaurung, uh, full grown uh, Glaurung and his brood. So Glaurung and his and his and his kids, the comparatively juvenile dragons, are. Um, would have withered all that was left of the Noldor. But the Naugrim made a circle about him when he assailed them, and even his mighty armor was not full proof against the blows of their great axes. And when in his rage Glaurung turned and struck down Azekhal, lord of Belagast, and crawled over him, with his last stroke, Azekhal drove a knife into his belly, and so wounded him that he fled the field, and the beasts of Angband in dismay followed after him. 
Then the dwarves raised up the body of Azahal and bore it away, and with slow steps they walked behind, singing a dirge in deep voices, as it were a funeral pomp in their country, and gave no heed more to their foes, and none dared to stay them. Um, certainly the valor of the dwarves in fighting against Glaurung um, is, A, something to remember, when we get to the stories of Smaug and the Kingdom Under the Mountain um, in The Hobbit, but also um, certainly that that uh, although the, you know their fight against Glaurung is cool and the stabbing uh, into the belly uh, of Glaurung is 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 an important piece of foreshadowing. That last sentence, for my money, is the really cool stuff. Um, the the dwarves. Everyone else is running away, right? The the Noldor have been uh, uh, the the, the that at least the uh, uh, force has been scattered, um, and then there are the dwarves marching away, singing a dirge, um, giving no more heed to their foes, and uh, none daring to stay them. Um, just amazing stuff. Uh, Mike, you had some you had some thoughts. Are you available to share them now? Uh, sure. What what I uh, noted was that uh, you know the dwarves in mourning over their fallen leader basically stopped fighting, and I would I read that to mean that uh, the orc not even the orcs were going to approach them while they were singing uh, their dirge while they were singing their song of power, and so I just thought if if I'm reading that right, it seems another great example of uh, how all the different races and key characters can sing songs of power that can complete completely transform people objects situations in powerful ways so the fact that they're singing at, at this time is sort of a magical uh, spell is cast on everyone and, and they're they're protected it reminded me of uh, Aragorn in Fellowship of the Ring when he's chanting the 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 song of Baron and Luthien, and that's keeping the ring wraiths away. It reminded me of uh, the song of the dwarves singing to Bilbo in The Hobbit, and and sort of bewitching Bilbo in a way and, and transforming him. It reminded me of Luthien's songs of power that we've we've already talked about. So this is one that I I missed it on the first pass, but then when I came back to it on a second read through. I took a closer look at the fact, okay, this is the dirge, this is their song of power, and while they're singing it, no one can touch them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when we were talking about uh, this connection between song and magic um, and enchantment in Tolkien, uh, when we were talking about this in the in the Finrod versus Sauron context a couple weeks ago, um, one of the things that we were saying was, you know, we see, you know, when there's... when when somebody with power sings a song like this, it happens. Um, you know, they, they, there's this, the song and the power has, has just, it, the, the things come true, just like the song um, of, you know, the the music of the Ainur made creation happen. Um, and so he, I, I, I agree, Mike, we do get that sense here. That is, what is happening around them is a rout. All of their allies are being chased screaming from the field. Um, but when the dwarves sing a funeral dirge, their song says, 
a funeral is happening. This is not a battle. This is certainly not a rout. This is a funeral. And a funeral happens, <laughs> right? And even the orcs, it, it's, it's not to me obvious that the orcs are like, wow, we're so afraid of the dwarves right now that like there's no way we would possibly fight them because they would kick our butts. I, that's not the sense that that passage has. I mean, I agree with you, Mike, that what the that what it seems to have is that they're them in that moment they are that they're they're like untouchable. A funeral is happening happening now, um, and and people can't stand against that. Dave, um, uh, a similar point. What this makes me reminds me of is um, the uh, the end of the battle of uh, Azanulzabar. Is that the correct correct pronunciation? Yes, um, yes. You know, the battle outside of Moria. Uh, it, you sort of get a similar thing in the sense that, that the, the dwarves sort of... Uh, it's more like it's more important to care properly care for the dead and to sort of clean up after a battle than it is to, to... You know, like that sort of becomes a priority. So specifically, you think of the... Um, um, oh, crap, I don't remember. Okay, who is it that at the end of the battle says, all right, guys, let's go conquer Moria? And then somebody else is like, uh, we were here for revenge, not for that. We're going home now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it, you recall which it's Thran, I think. I mean, it's Thorin's dad, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think that's right. And and is, is it Dain, the, the cousin, is like, no, screw it. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah, yeah. Because Dine is the one who says, "No, I, I alone, all of you have looked into Moria because he killed Azog on the steps of Moria. So he was there, and he's looking in the gate right. of Moria. Um, and it's Dine who's like, uh, you know." Not sure that's a great idea. And the rest of the dwarves, because remember, uh, we're told for that war against the goblins um, that not just yeah. the people of Durin, but all, you know, as many of the people of the seven tribes of dwarves that could be gathered all come in. And so the rest of them are like, no, we're done. I mean, this was this was for vengeance, and we've gotten vengeance. We're not going to help you, yeah. you know, reclaim Moria right now. Yeah. So it's it's and and then in the aftermath of the battle, they they're very particular about how the um, the bodies of the slain dwarves are cared for, and they're they're you know they end up having to burn them because it's a choice between burning them or or leaving them out for carrion um, to, to devour them, and that's not an option. But they're not thrilled about it because it's not in line with how they usually treat their dead. And then they also meticulously pick up all their equipment to ensure that the uh, it doesn't fall into the hands of orcs. And it's it's very interesting that they have that sort of they're they're very sort of very particular about those sorts of things. And I, I, so this kind of reminds me of that in the same I feel like it's the same sort of attitudes coming through. Yeah, it certainly is interesting, especially in light of the fact that in um in Appendix A, Part 3, that is the, the Durin's Folk um, appendix of The Lord of the Rings, um, we one of the things that Tolkien recognizes there is that there's this debate over what happens to dwarves when they die. Like, nobody really knows what happens to dwarf bodies, or at least there's, there's, there's dispute about what happens to the bodies of dwarves. Um, and yet, you're right that on these two high-profile occasions, we see the dwarves themselves paying a great deal of attention to what happens to the bodies, um, uh, you know, and them taking uh, funerals and funeral rites uh, very seriously. Um, so no, I think that. Can I ask a, uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 no. It's okay. I, I no, I'm about to change the subject. That's fine, so actually. I'm done with dwarves. Go for it. Thought. What's that? Go for it. 
Oh, I wanted to ask a, a completely different trivial question, which is, so it's interesting, I feel like the picture of Smaug painted in The Hobbit is one such that, like, he's basically almost entirely unassailable and practically invincible, except for this bare patch on his left breast, and that all the weapons of the dwarves could never penetrate his um, uh, uh, hide. Uh, and yet here we here we see that they're actually extremely the dwarves here are extremely effective against um, uh, Glaurung, the father of the dragons, who's supposed to be the most powerful dragon. And um, and I'm wondering, I, I sort of had two I'm wondering about this. It, it could just be that that Glaurung has the same sort of unassailability that Smaug does, uh, and that his weak point is also his underbelly. Uh, and it's just that Smog happened to be wearing armor, essentially, you know, the jeweled armor. Or is this potentially one of those sort of, uh, another yet another one of those things in Tolkien where the older is better. So these dwarves made better weapons than the later dwarves. And so even though this is a more powerful dragon, they can actually, they battle him more effectively and can penetrate his hide because these are essentially sort of the better older dwarves who, who, who know the craft and know how to make these really wonderful weapons. And that the later dwarves at the time of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings have sort of forgotten all these wonderful secrets of old and they don't make quite as good of weapons and so they can't fight the dragons quite as well and that kind of stuff. Because it's, you know, that's really the, the picture that's painted when, when Smaug um, invades the, the Lonely Mountain is the dwarves just run. They're like, we don't stand a chance. We can't fight him. Our weapons are useless against him. And here you have the dwarves fighting Glaurung and they're standing in there and they're doing some damage. So. Right, right. Well, I think... Two things to remember there. Um, one is that I think there's every reason to think that Smaug is more powerful than Glaurung um, because he is, as we'll see several chapters down the road, though Glaurung is the father of dragons um, and older does tend to be better and so you'd think he would be the greatest. In some ways he is, but he's only Dragon 1.0. We're going to get Dragon 2.0. Um, you know, th- there is there is going to be a, there's going to be a major upgrade uh, to dragons, um, and Smaug is a winged dragon. The winged Glaurung does not have wings; he cannot fly. He is a land-bound dragon. Um, so him and the Balrogs fighting on foot throughout this battle, as we see. Um, uh, but the winged dragons are going to be a massively powerful and uh, uh, just an enormous force, way power, way more powerful uh, than than the original dragons. Uh, and Smaug is one of that kind. So, you know, on the one hand, we actually do have reason to think um, that Smaug could actually be more powerful than Glaurung to start with. Um, but I think um, the dwarves, we also have reason to think, are lesser. Uh, than the old dwarven, not as, uh, their weapons, perhaps, but also them themselves. I mean that you know we, we were talking about. Um, this reminds me of of this sort of the similar discussion we were having about Luthien kicking Sauron's butt, and uh, kind of the difference between the three different stages of Sauron's career here. Right, you know, at this point when. Um, you know, it, it, or doing it the other way around. In the Third Age, you know, you've got Sauron as this, you know, functionally infinite from the point of view of the little good guys opposing him, power of evil that nobody could possibly stand up against, and they just have to kind of undermine him by destroying the ring. But there's no even question about fighting him head to head. And 
whereas that you know prior to that at the end of the second age it's possible it takes a lot of effort and a lot of people die but they they can and do take him down um then going back to the first age when uh you know Sauron gets completely uh defeated by an elf maiden and a dog so um and i think you know as I, as i was saying last time i think that is uh, that it, one of the way one of the things that we're supposed to take from that is a reflection of how people have have decreased um the the good guys just are not as great they're not as powerful um they don't have the stature uh to do that anymore and i think that you know that we can see the same thing happening with the with the dwarves i think to some extent again and i would say they're personally not just in their smithcraft um but in their whole <laughs> but to say their their stature um which i don't mean to be a short joke towards dwarves just that they're not as powerful but um chris uh, just a quick comment on the dwarves and their craft. Um, I've always had the impression that particularly in Khazad-dûm, uh, the dwarves are at the height of their craft, if you will, at the time the Balrog is awoken in the Third Age. Right. And then after that time, they say all the people who really knew all, all the ancient secrets or all the really good stuff uh, were, were killed. And so everything they did after that was of lesser of lesser quality, like the Bilbo's mail coat that was made, perhaps in the old days, um, before the before Moria fell. Um, but I, that, that's my sense as far as their their techno- technology, if you will. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I I certainly agree with you. Certainly, when it comes to Durin's folk, um, that point right before, as you say, when the Balrog awoke, was certainly the 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 pinnacle of their culture. Um, whether it was, you know, whether or not their smithcraft was better then than it was a thousand years previously, I'm not sure. I would think possibly yes, because that's also the moment at which, you know, they have been collaborating um, with the Noldor that lived nearby. Um, so uh, so th- that actually does, certainly does seem to add to them and to elevate them. Um, so I, I think... All in all, that seems that seems right. But yeah, certainly by the time we get to the attack of Smaug in the Lonely Mountain, um, we're well advanced on the downward slope there. Brandon. Yeah, I just wanted to comment on the um, the feet theme that we have. That um, you know that uh, this constant fading. I think the whole the whole point of the Simmerillion is that uh, failure is sort of like an inevitable thing, even from generation to generation. Um, even in scholarship, um, but it's kind of how you handle the defeat, which seems to define the characters in Tolkien from a good person or a despairing bad person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, hope and despair is really important, and that's where, again I, I would want to come back to you know Fingon and his outcries there. Um, and the hope that they have, it's not, it's, it's one of the things that is so, so powerful about that and so painful about that is that it's not true, it turns out. Day has not come yet. In fact, really, the night is just kind of getting warmed up here. Um, if it's looked like nighttime in Beleriand to this point, 
you know, actually, when you back up and look at the whole thing, the nighttime is only really just starting. Um, it's going to get way darker than it has been. Um, so they're wrong when they say they're just inaccurate in saying that the day has come and the night is passing. Um, but that doesn't make their hope a wrong thing. The wrong thing is to despair. And, and doesn't um, kind of Faramir have a sort of a same moment of uh, you catastrophe, you know, kind of, you know, we know we're going into defeat, but don't despair, we're still going to give it our all, and um, we know we're facing defeat. And then we have, of course, the kind of, the uh, the difference between Théoden and uh, Denethor. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah, definitely. I wonder, the the scene that you're remembering there, could that be uh, uh, Baragond and Pippin up on the walls? When they're talking about, is that the moment that you're thinking about? Well, there too. Yeah, we can we we can talk about that too. I'm, I'm thinking more of um, when um, when Aragorn is is arriving with the fleet, and you know, Faramir doesn't know yet that oh, Amir, you mean is arriving? Yeah. Amir, yeah, Faramir, of course, is up, uh, 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 about to be lit on fire. But yeah, no, Amir's oh, yeah, mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. And his um, that moment of and because it, it is a really crucial thing that the moment Amir is the first person uh, in Minas Tirith to see the standard of the King of Gondor being flown in from the foremost of the ships that are sailing up the Anduin. Um, and he sees it at the moment when, recognizing that they're all going to die, he lifts up his sword to defy them. Um, and so, in other words, he's, he's, he, 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 he retains hope, a kind of hope. Um, and I actually think that that moment of eucatastrophe, that moment of Aemir's last battle there uh, when he, what he believes is going to be the last battle of the of the men of Rohan I think is really um is really compelling to look at that in conjunction with the last stand um of of Hurin in the house of Hador um but uh the, that full discussion would be for another time uh when we're reading the battle of Pelennor field too but uh, but 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 I'm glad you made that connection because I think that that's um that is exactly a kind of hope. It's it's like Fingen's hope, except, of course, it works out. It gets a catastrophe. Fingen gets a catastrophe too, but it uh, uh, not a not the not a long term kind of catastrophe, or at least, or perhaps I should say, not not a short term catastrophe. Um, uh, yeah, Jason. I wanted to go back to something you said about Glowering and Smaug and how Smaug was greater than Glowering. That kind of threw me when you first said it. And I get the argument, you know, winged dragons and, you know, further upgrades and all that. But um, I'm wondering, because I kind of think of Glowering in, ter- Glowering in terms of or, or the greatness of the dragon as kind of the impact on the overall story. And it seems to me that in, in that sense that Glowering... Uh, clearly plays a bigger role in the kind of macro history than than Smaug does, and maybe that's because he he acts as kind of an, an agent of Morgoth. That might be something we want to discuss at more length when we talk about the story of Turin. Yeah, but it seems like all the um, you know the taking of Nargothrond seems to me to be a more impressive thing than the taking of the Lonely Mountain, for example. And then of course uh, putting the whammy on Neonor and all that. I mean that that that's 
some really impressive stuff that I think shows that Glowering is, is almost a kind of unique force at work uh, in, in the story of the, the Wars of Beleriand. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree, and, and we certainly will look at that more um, uh, in the next couple of weeks when we when we do the Turin chapter. Um, yeah, we don't see, you know, and but though, of course, also some of this is, it's hard to, it's hard to see how much of the differences that we perceive there are differences based on the enormous gap in style between the Silmarillion and the Hobbit. Um, you know, we we see the force of Glaurung's um, will at play, um, as you say, when he puts the whammy on Neonor. Um, in The Hobbit, we're told that Smaug had a rather overwhelming personality, right? Um, which, you know, I'm not sure doesn't actually mean the same thing. Um, that in that moment, Smaug is trying to put the whammy on Bilbo in a similar way to what Glaurung does... Um, if not to 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 Neonor, at least to Turin, um, but it doesn't work because Bilbo doesn't go along with it. Um, he does not, for instance. Uh, and this is this, you know there are several times when when you read the story of of Turin and Glaurung and then come back to Bilbo and Smaug, there are so many things that you can see there um, that we might not have noticed otherwise. Like for instance. Um, the com- Bilbo refusing to tell the dragon his name, which the narrator points out is very wise. Um, Turin, as we'll see, cheerfully declares his name uh, to the dragon, which uh, is 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 not a good thing. So anyway, I I I totally see where you're coming from, and I definitely don't want to um, underestimate the power of Glaurung or, or sort of downplay his either his significance or his or his strength. Um, yeah I, yeah, I don't want to be tagged as a glowering apologist or anything like that. I just it, it really struck me when you made that comment, and I thought I was just kind of turning it over in my mind as to how we would measure the greatness of a dragon. So it's an interesting little digression. Yeah, yeah, no, I think so. I think so. Um, okay, we should. Uh, we're starting to run out of time, so I want to at least get to. Um, the last stand of the House of Hador before we before we leave. And here the the two things I want to look at um, are first their discussion with Turgon and especially Huor's prophecy. And then I want to look at um, uh, of course Hurin's Hurin's final stand. Uh, um, so Huor first. Um, let's 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 look at his actual his actual prophecy that he that he makes. Um, page 194. Um, Turgon has just said... So, Huron, Huron, Huron tells Turgon, um, Go now, Lord, while time is, for in you lives the last hope of the Eldar, and while Gondolin stands, Morgoth shall still know fear in his heart. But Turgon answered, Not long now can Gondolin be hidden, and being discovered it must fall. Um, file that away. We'll come back to that in, a, in in several weeks when we come back to Gondolin. Um, Turgon saying, first of all, it can't be hidden for long. It's not going to be long now before he finds it. And if it's discovered, it will. It must fall. Um, I think he's going to be thinking a little bit less clearly than that. 
a little bit further down the road. But anyway, then Huar spoke and said, Yet if it stands but a little while, then out of your house shall come the hope of elves and men. This I say to you, Lord, with the eyes of death, though we part here forever, and I shall not look on your white walls again. From you and from me a new star shall arise. Farewell. Now, I think... It's it's not that the the, the prophecy is a you know I don't I don't want to sort of sort of make it sound more complicated than it is. It's not that the prophecy is itself very inscrutable. I mean, if we know anything of the stories that come after, even without having read the end of the Silmarillion, um, even just from the references that we get to this in the Lord of the Rings, we can we should be able to make a good step at what he's talking about here. Um, it's plain that he is prophesying the birth of Eärendil and the significance of. Eärendil in in facilitating at least bringing about um, the salvation of of the people of Beleriand, but I think that the the sort of the the choice of words here and the choice of imagery and the, the like exactly what he prophesizes and the things that he says I think are I think are really interesting. But um, Brandon, go ahead. Yeah, I was just about to say the exact same thing that this um this star that shall rise is probably going to be Erendil, but um it's just interesting I, um that he says it with um the eyes of death. You know, he says this with the eyes of death and one thinks sort of of this of a Mandos picture of like this impartial kind of very doomsman like yeah. um prophecy. And um, you know just how that's going to be fulfilled. It's just it's um, it's just very interesting how prophecy plays out, and, or doesn't play out, or doesn't seem to play out at the time in Tolkien, uh, especially here. But this is kind of you're right, very kind of sort of clear cut. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, again, it, it is in general terms. Um, though I I agree with you. I think that that that, that thing about the the eyes of death. Um, and this is the second time that we've had that. The other person who saw really clearly with the eyes of death was Feanor. Um, as he knew he was going to die, he see, with the eyes of death he sees, and he knows for certain, he sees Thangorodrim and he knows that the Noldor are never going to be able to take it. And then, of course, we see his reaction to that uh, is, to cur- is, to, is to curse. He literally curses Morgoth and dies. But here... Um, yeah, this this idea that that death or the imminence of death gives him a kind of perspective. Um, this this sort of unique pers- gives him e- even this prophetic power. Um, this sort of separation from things. But I think it's the reference to the star that I think is that I think is really is really fascinating. The way that it kind of looks forward. Um, the rising of the star. On the one hand is a sign of hope. And when the new star rises, um, Eärendil, bearing the Silmaril, is going to be launched up into the sky as a star. And that will happen prior to the final battle, to the War of Wrath, at the end of the First Age. Um, and that is a sign. And when the people will we'll be told, I mean, of course, this is this is jumping ahead, but it's prophecy. We're supposed to be jumping ahead. Um, we're told that when the people, the last remnant of the of the elves and the uh, and the Adain in Middle Earth in Beleriand, look up and see the 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 new star rising, they wonder at it and they consider it they consider it a sign of hope. 
Um, but at the same time, the being a new star is also sort of the final destiny of Aya Rendell that goes be- it's it's beyond just just the battle, and of course it's also it's also the Silmaril itself that is the new star. Um, it's the light of the Silmaril on the brow of Aya Rendell that gives the light of the star. So what he's prophesying is the ultimate destiny of this Silmaril, and you know the, the Silmaril taking its place. In the heavens, um, again, and this is the final destiny of Arendel. It's not just and the Valar. I prophesy that the Valar are going to come back and finally kick Morgoth's butt, and it's going to be awesome. What he's prophesying is what he's prophesying is this sort of final state, the final state of the star of Arendel being in the sky and the Silmaril taking its final place up there. That's going to happen. That's going to be facilitated. Um, this, f- what will be, in a sense, the final memorial of the first age, um, the star, uh, is going to come, is going to come from us. The way in which the prophecy kind of goes beyond, not only beyond the immediate circumstances of the battle they're fighting that day, but even beyond the circumstances of the war they've been fighting with Morgoth for centuries. Um, that's that anyway. That that's what I find kind of interesting about uh, um, about uh, about this prophecy. Yes, and as uh, as as Dave is is commenting, Dave, are you are you there? You want you want to say that aloud? Sure. Um. Well, you just make me. It's very interesting. You're saying that that um, that uh, here we're looking forward to the rest of the story, which which leads all the way up till the Lord of the Rings and even beyond. Uh, and that there's that very interesting point in toward the end of the Return of the King, where Frodo and Sam are looking at the Star of Arendel, and they look back to essentially this point. They look back on all the stories, and, and this star becomes, uh, you know, the star of Arendil becomes sort of the, uh, the the one constant, the sort of continuous thing from the end of the first age throughout the rest of the history of Middle-earth that, that ties everything together and, 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 and makes it to where everyone's part of the same story, as uh, Sam and Frodo point out. So I just thought it was very interesting that here we're looking forward to that, and then there's that point at the end of the Return of the King where we look back on it all. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it 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 becomes the guiding light. It becomes the you know the one thing which is above all of the stories and connecting all of the stories. Um, a. Rendell. I mean, and at the same time, in Tolkien's own writing history, Arendel was the beginning of all of the stories. The story of Arendel in its initial versions, which he never which we don't have in full, um was was the very first of all of the stories of Beleriand that Tolkien wrote. It started with Arendel and he becomes and and, and ends with Arendel or or rather Arendel is continuing to oversee all the rest of it. Um so there certainly is a way in which at the end of the day the star of Arendel, Arendel in his ship with the Silmaril on his brow in the sky, um, sort of flying over top of Middle Earth, is sort of that 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 last central ultimate image, um, sort of epitome of the whole story of this whole story of of the of the Lord of the Rings story. I mean, it's um, it's 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 kind of it's in a I mean. I was tempted to say it's it's like the key to the whole thing. I don't want to say key because it makes it sound like it's sort of like a, 
a riddle to which Arendel is the answer, but um, but it is certainly that image is, is is kind of given to us as a way to to sort of link all of the other things together. So I just think that in this way, Tour's prophecy goes beyond what would already be pretty cool, which is a prophecy of the final deliverance of the people of Middle-earth from <clears throat> the domination of Morgoth. That'd be an awesome prophecy, but his prophecy goes beyond that. And he, what he gets a glimpse of is he gets a glimpse of the big picture. Kind of like, remember in Mordor, when Sam has that glimpse of the star up above in the sky, which helps him to see the big picture and to put evil in its place and to recognize that the shadow is but a small and passing thing after all and that there is high beauty above its reach. Um, that, it's like that's what, Tuor, that's, what, that's, what, that's what Huor is seeing here with the eyes of death. Um, that glimpse, and not just the fact that that high beauty exists, but the role that elves and men are going to have in it, and the fact that what they're doing here, no, they can't possibly hope to defeat Morgoth, especially now that most of their armies have been slaughtered, but, and all of their people, that is the people of Hadar, are just about to be butchered. However, what they're doing really does matter, and they are contributing, they are making a part of that story. They, together, from Huor and from Turgon, is going to come this new star, that high beauty that is going to be above and beyond the shadow. Um, so, yeah, big fan of, uh, not only a big fan of that passage, um, but uh, uh, that is the, the, the passage with Sam, seeing the star uh in the return of the king but uh but big fan of 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 Huor's prophecy in the in the in the whole scope of things um okay on to the one other thing of which I am a huge fan which is the last sacrifice of Hurin um does somebody want to read this can we get a reading of the last of all Hurin stood alone paragraph volunteers Joe? All right, you want me to go ahead? Go for it. <clears throat> all right. Last of all, Hurin stood alone. Then he cast aside his shield and wielded an axe two-handed, and it is sung that the axe smoked in the black blood of the troll guard of Gothmog until it withered. And each time that he slew, Hurin cried, Aure in Teluva, they shall come again. Seventy times he uttered that cry, but they took him at last alive. <clears throat> by the command of Morgoth, for the orcs grappled him with their hands, which clung to him still, though he hewed off their arms. And ever their numbers were renewed, until at last he fell buried beneath them. Then Gothmog bound him and dragged him to Angband with mockery. With mockery is one of the most painful things there, I think. But um, awesome, very good, very good. Now. Obviously, since uh, uh, we, you know, I, I emphasize so heavily the out the 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 cry and response from Fingon and his host earlier, we are obviously supposed to be, um, rem- we're obviously supposed to be remembering that here in this moment, hearing Hurin cry out, and it's all the more evocative, remembering the 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 fundamentally communal nature of the earlier shouts. Right? It's it's Fingon, the high king of the Noldor and captain of the host, crying out to his army, and the army uh, responding in one voice to him. And now this is Hurin, completely alone, surrounded by the corpses of 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 the men of his people. He's the last man in his.
his entire army left alive, um, and he's still crying out an echo of that cry um, that they were shouting back and forth before. And his... uh, Yeah, yeah, sorry, Mike, go ahead. Yeah, in comparing the two passages, and in this the second one, the sun is now setting. The sun is actually physically day. Day is go is ending. The sun is going down. When he's saying this. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And you look at what his cry is: "Day shall come again." Again, I, I uh, you know spent time talking about the grammar of the previous outcries, and I think that this one is just as good. You can see uh, the really cool things that he is suggesting by saying "day shall come again." Notice we're in the future tense now, right? "Day shall come again." This is no longer. I am confident that this is what is occurring now, but rather, I am. You know, which the other was too, a statement of hope, and now this is more clearly, even though everything is collapsing, even though um, all is lost, day shall come again. Nick? Yeah, I wanted to comment quickly on the importance of songs of valor yeah. and sadness and how they instill hope. Um, with this passage... Um, it's all prefaced with quote unquote um, the it, it is sung, and regardless of the fate of her and, and all the others, his prophecy par- prophecy that day shall come again did come true because the song was written, and at this point it's this point that instills hope in the listener. The whole purpose of the song of her and his fate, even though it's incredibly sad is to instill hope in whoever's listening to it. And this is a theme that runs throughout the entire book and really all, all, all the books of Tolkien. Yeah. Um, that through sorrow comes hope. Yeah, 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 definitely. No, and I, I agree, just that one brief re- reference to, and it is sung that, um, to, to remind us that the story that we're getting... Um, Brief. I get to thinking of the phrase that he uses explicitly at the beginning of the Baron and Luthien chapter, as we discussed. Um, here, the tale is told in fewer words and without song. Um, although we're we're getting this story in few words and without song, um, we are reminded there, as you point out, Nick, that this is that this is a song, and that this is gen- this is supposed to be sung, and that that's that the song, the song of the, um, the song of the last stand of the men of Dor Loman, um is is a song of hope even though it's a song of tragedy it's a song of hope um and it's also a song of defiance and that to me is one of the most amazing things about the day shall come again um not just that day shall come Had, if he were just saying day shall come that would that that would already be cool you know then you know his his looking forwards in the future tense to the day that's coming okay maybe the night hasn't passed you know maybe that maybe the day has not come right now but the day shall come but they shall come again. And there again, I think we can see glimpses of the or sort of shades of, of, of Sam's insight when he sees that star that we were just talking about, of the fact that there is light and high beauty, that the, sh- and the shadow is a small and passing thing. Um, he, is, he is mocking Morgoth here in this cry, not only by saying, I am confident that the day will come when you will be overthrown, that when your evil will pass, and that light and beauty will return. He's not only saying that, he's also saying, it used to be day, and it's going to be day again. This this night is just a passing thing. Um, and 
to you know to basically he sort of with that with with by by saying day shall come again he is recontextualizing the whole darkness that surrounds them there in Beleriand. This is just uh, this is a passing night. Um, there was light before, so even even the even the night, you know, the the big darkness that we got earlier, uh, you know, the, in the darkening of Valinor and the destruction of the trees, that was pretty bad. But you know what? That too, it's just it's a night. You know, there was day before, there'll be day after, um, and he's not going to make any sort of ultimate and final progress. This is not a final defeat. Um, and of all the people who have ever expressed hope and defiance um, in all of Tolkien's works, Hurin does it, you know, against against greater odds and under worst conditions uh, under worst conditions than almost any that I can uh, th- th- that I can think of anyway. Um, but uh um but yeah so i mean this is just is why this that paragraph is one of my very favorite moments in all of tolkien's writings i just uh, i i just love huron's huron's final stand well there's some things that we can say about kind of the aftermath that we get for the last two pages uh of this chapter but i think we we've some of it we've already talked about that is we've talked about the uh um the people of Oldor being shut up in Hithlam. Um, however, I think we can save two things. The two major things that um, I would want to make sure that we talk about sooner or later at the end of this chapter is first Turgon sending out his messengers, and secondly, the curse of Hurin uh, and the exchange between Hurin and Morgoth. Um but I think we can save those. The Turgon and Cured in the Shipwright and Olmo stuff, um, we can save to talk about later on, certainly when we get to Tuor uh, and the Fall of Gondolin. Um, we should remember to come back to this passage. And we'll start next week with looking at the curse of Hurin, because, of course, in many ways, that is the beginning of the next story that we're going to be doing, which is the story of Turin Turambar. So we're going to be doing the story of Turin Turambar in uh in over two weeks well, we had planned we'll see if we can do the whole thing in two weeks i think we might be able to um but we as i think we'll begin it with the curse of hurin so thanks very much any final thoughts before we go here tonight no thoughts <laughs> yay bruins says mike uh <laughs> brandon oh i was gonna say um no, it's just good to see that we could take one of the saddest, most defeating chapters in all the Cimmerillion and just kind of find the heroism in it, you know? I think that's pretty cool. Congratulations, everybody. <laughs> yeah, 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 that was good. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, and this is the thing, you know, as I, as I warned it several times, the Cimmerillion and parts of it can seem really depressing, and it's, it's, we are now definitely in the, in the section of it where every chapter is going to be like, it can't get worse. No, no, it can. Yes, it can get worse. Um, it definitely seems like that, but I think that this is, this is, I think, one of the one of the real effects, one of the one of the really remarkable things about this story is that ultimately, ultimately, these are stories of hope. These are not these are not really just depressing stories. Um, 
Good. Well, I think we will sort of wrap up our official... Bottom, there's no place to go but up. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's, it's going to be a ways before we reach the bottom. We're still way, we're still way above the bottom. But all right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. Uh, and I think we will, we will sign off and uh, say goodbye to uh, all the people who have been listening on the Middle-Earth Network Radio. Thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, we hope that you will continue to join us as we move forward through the end of the book. And also stay tuned uh, to my podcast feed and website for the back episodes, uh, the back, the cleaned up back episodes as we are uh, steadily going through and releasing them as well. So uh, thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next week. Thus concludes Of the Fifth Battle. Certainly somber, but remember, day shall come again. Next week, we dive into the lighthearted comedy stylings of Turin Turambar. This is Jordan Brown. For myself and the rest of the Silmarillionaires, thanks for listening, and Godspeed.